Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. So when Father Scott asked me about a month ago to come and preach on Palm Sunday, I said, I can do that, but I'm going to pull a sermon out of my old sermon bin. Um, and I have a very large old sermon bin since I've been preaching for about 27 years. Um, but nothing really seemed right with the passages that I'd preached on before on Palm Sunday. And so I started reading the gospel reading from Mark chapter 11, which we heard at the beginning of the sermon, which is the text that the church gives for this day. And I was really intrigued by it because what struck me in the gospel of Mark is that most of that short reading for Palm Sunday is almost about 60% of it is focused on the donkey. How they get the donkey, what Jesus says about the donkey, how he rode on the donkey, how he promised to bring the donkey back. And so I started imagining um, gospel writer Mark as an old man with his grandkids and his great-grandkids around him. And he's sitting on a chair and they're all sitting on the ground and he's going, hey kids. I ever tell you about the time with the donkey and Jesus, we got the donkey and the grandkids go, grandpa, that's all you ever talk about is Jesus and the donkey. What's up with the donkey? So I'm, I'm really, really fascinated with this donkey. So all four gospel accounts, because they're eyewitness accounts, they come at it from different angles and they emphasize different details. And for Mark, it's a lot about the donkey. It really is. So there's something about this donkey that's crucial. Hence my sermon title, How the Donkey Explains the Bible, Jesus, Palm Sunday, and Your Life. Now you may be wondering, can this guy actually pull that off in one sermon? Probably not, but I'll do the best I can. So it's almost like there's four concentric circles. So we start with the Bible, and then we move into Palm Sunday, and then we move into, or it's, then we move into Jesus and his life, and then we move into Palm Sunday, and then we move into your life. And I do think that if we get this, if we get the symbolism of the donkey, it's like a clue that unlocks what the Christian life is all about. So let's start with the Bible. Let's start with this big circle out here. And, and I'm indebted to this to a, a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor, maybe you've read him, but Tim Keller in his new book, he says that many of us living in the Western world don't really understand the, what the Bible is all about. And we think it's a very safe book, and it's a very comforting book, and it's a, very, it's a book to sort of buttress up the status quo. And Keller says, no, actually the Bible is really subversive. And we don't understand how revolutionary it is because we, we do not understand the overall narrative arc of the, story, of the story, of the biblical story. We don't see it for what it really is. It is what he calls the story of the great reversal. And the great reversal starts with simply this, that the God and king and creator of all that is became small and vulnerable. He comes to us and he brings life out of death. 
He brings resurrection out of crucifixion. He lifts up the poor from the ash heap, as it says in Psalm 113. He makes the weak strong. He liberates captives. He tears down the powerful and corrupt. And he places it with people from the margins. That is radically subversive. And I would posit to you, it's, it's much more radically subversive than, than Marxism, which is supposedly this subversive philosophy, which may have a good intent to reverse a, a world that's upside down, but what it has done is created a whole new class of elites. The great reversal in the Bible truly has this power to reverse things, and I could literally give you hundreds of examples of the biblical story, but let me just give you four or five. So as God, in Genesis chapter 12, as God relaunches the story of redemption, he chooses two people, Abraham and Sarah, who are by the world standards not strong or, or really important people. They are old in a world in which, they're old and childless in a world that, that valued children. They are morally flawed, and yet God says, through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. You will be the funnel through which I will bless all the nations of the earth. I will bless you and you will bless all the nations of the world. It's an astounding claim, and it comes through them. We read later in the story, and there's this beautiful story about a woman named Ruth, and she is, in biblical terms, she's what the Hebrew Bible would call a, one of the gerim, a, a, a ger, a foreigner, a, a woman who has come from the outside, and, and God sees this woman and notices this woman and blesses this woman and says, it says in the book of Ruth, this lovely phrase that she has come under the God of Israel, under whose wings she has come for refuge. And God chooses her and blesses her and, the, and she, she becomes, Jesus becomes a descendant of hers, the Messiah and King David. She becomes this, this marginalized person who's put in the center or we think of David, the great King David, who was really the runt of the litter. He was the eighth of, of eight of his brothers. He was young. He was small. He fights this mighty Goliath figure, but he has five smooth stones and a slingshot. And he achieves this great victory. Or we come to the New Testament, we think of Mary, who's this poor peasant woman who becomes the bearer of our Lord. Or the New Testament, we, we see the... the the disciples who are fishermen, they're ordinary people. They would be, in our terms, they would be like diesel mechanics or plumbers. You know, they are not wise by worldly standards, and yet God chooses them to build his church. In the eyes of the cultural elites, these are little people. They are marginalized people. And God works not despite their weaknesses, but he works through their weakness intentionally. So the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, talking to the church there, he would tell them, for consider yourselves. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see this great reversal weaving its way through the Bible. And it's the same today. Where does the gospel burn brightest today in our world? Well, certainly in parts of the United States, but often as I've traveled around the globe as, as my role as missions pastor at Church of the Resurrection, I get to see the church in these places of poverty and persecution. And, and it's often there that I see, wow, 
the faith is alive. It's vital. I think of sitting in a hut on a, on a grass floor in a hut in the middle of western highlands of Papua New Guinea and this old mama stands up to give testimony and she's talking in tuck pieces so I can't understand it and so my son who lives there as a as a doctor he translated for me she, he said well she's saying that she has cancer and she's been given six months to live and there's nothing they can do for her in this country and she will die and she says if the Lord heals me he will heal me and I rejoice but if I don't get healed I will go to heaven and in that I rejoice too I sat there, wow, what faith. In the middle of this grass hut, you see the great reversal. That's the story of the Bible. But it's also the story of Jesus, the second circle. The narrative arc of the great reversal weaves right through his life and his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. You saw that in the scripture reading that you heard, Philippians 2. What a beautiful passage. Jesus was in the form of God, St. Paul says in this probably ancient hymn that he's quoting. He says Jesus was, was God in human flesh. And, and yet he became vulnerable. He became woundable. Look at verses 7 and 8. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I have a friend who was a missionary in Pakistan for a couple decades. And he said, he, with tears in his eyes, he, he loves to tell me, he says, Matt, our Lord and Savior Jesus is so humble. He is the humble God. There's nothing like this in anywhere in the world, any other world religions. He's born in very simple circumstances. He becomes a refugee at a young age. He, he lives in an ordinary village. He works an ordinary job. He dies the death on a cross, uh, which Romans reserved for the lowest of Roman non-citizens. They didn't crucify their own citizens. Fleming Rutledge, in her beautiful book on the crucifixion, she says, she's talking about the death of Jesus. She says, think of all the slaves that came to the, United, to, to, to the, to the American colonies through that passageway. And she says, and I quote, no one remembers their names or their individual histories. Their stories were thrown away with their bodies. This was the destiny chosen by the creator and Lord of the universe. The death of a nobody. You cannot get any more humble than a cross. And yet, here's that great reversal I talked about. Philippians chapter two, verse nine. Therefore God... The Father has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This great reversal runs through the Bible, runs through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and we also see it in Palm Sunday, especially I think in Mark's gospel, more than the other four gospels. We call it the triumphal entry. But a lot of Bible scholars from Mark, they call it the non-triumphal entry because it's really a lowly entry if you really think about it. And here's where the donkey comes in. My friend, the donkey. It's all about the donkey. Now notice though, first of all, Jesus has this completely mapped out. He is a man in charge of this whole scenario. There is no accidents here. 
He is leading. He's the Lord. He's the humble Lord, but He's the Lord. As somebody has said, Jesus is the only person in history who was humble, but not modest. I'm the Lord, but I'm a humble Lord. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you enter it, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. The Lord has need of it. I need it. He's clearly in charge. And notice, he's riding an unbroken animal. Now, I don't know if you've been around animals, but horses, donkeys, it's really hard to ride an unbroken animal. But here he is riding it through a crowd of people. And the animal is the, this unridden donkey is completely calm. Like Jesus is, is in charge of even nature. This is like a, some, some scholars think this is like a mini calming of the storm. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm of the sea? This is like a miracle too. He's like calming the donkey. And he's riding through. And there are biblical references here. So for instance, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's also the fact that the detail that it's tied. Most scholars think that links back to a verse in Genesis, chapter 49, verse 11, which talks about this ruler coming who, who is described as binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as the Messiah, and yet he's coming as the Lord who is humble. He doesn't even own the donkey. He doesn't own anything. He's got the clothes on his back. He says, don't worry, I'll bring it back because it's not my donkey. I love that. Notice verse 7. I love this detail. So they, um, many spread, or verse 8, many spread their cloaks, or, or they brought the, the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. He doesn't even have a saddle. The saddle is the cloaks of the poor. Here's the great reversal at work again. Now the crowd is singing Hosanna, but I don't really think in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't really, it's not really clear that they really know what's happening here. That they really, really know who this is. Compare Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with Julius Caesar, who earlier had entered into Rome. One historian said that this great ruler of the Roman people, Rome was spellbound for many days by the grandest celebrations. What he and his soldiers had achieved and who he was must be made manifest and palpable. So here's what they did. They had great Spectacles. The city was splendidly adorned. They had gladiatorial games, people killing each other. There was feasting at 22,000 tables, it was said. He made sure there was a huge circus surrounded by a moat. There were teams of horses and war chariots. He, they set up five days of bloody fights involving 500 men, 20 elephants, and 30 horsemen on each side fighting each other. This took months of planning. 
Compare this with the non-triumphal entry of our humble Lord. Do you see the great reversal? Caesar in his power and splendor and violence and cruelty is dead. Isaiah, the prophet, said he's like a drop from a bucket. Nobody bends their knee to Caesar anymore. And yet Jesus, lowly, on a donkey, with this crowd of peasants, the cultural elites ignored him. He is the true king. And St. Paul says in this ancient Christian hymn, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's this, the Bible, the life of Jesus, Palm Sunday, and now your life. Because this is not just an inspiring story. It's not just, oh, God loves underdogs. That's cool. I love underdogs. That's why I still root for the Minnesota Gophers, you know. I love underdogs. It's not meant to be a nice story. It's meant to convert us. This humble king, the true Lord, is coming for me and for you. Coming to woo and to win your heart. Here's the gospel message. Gospel message of Jesus reverses the world's wisdom, even about what we think of religion. Because the message we often get, the message that I think is still the default message of our culture is that if you work hard enough, if you achieve enough, if you impress people and you impress God and you avoid mistakes and you're respectable and you pull yourself up and you're disciplined and you're good and you're moral and you're better than those people, at least better than those people out there, you can earn your salvation. You can be right with God. You can justify yourself. Here's the problem with that. And I've been watching this for 60 years now, and I think this is true. That message will either make you proud and self-righteous because you're better than those people, or it will crush you with anxiety because you're never, you're always on a treadmill trying to be good enough. And I would just say in our culture today, both of these things are everywhere in our culture. And oftentimes, we're struggling with both of them at the same time. This self-righteousness and this anxiety that crushes us. And the gospel says, it reverses that and says, you will only be saved by admitting your need, by becoming humble. It's not so much about the good people and the bad people. It's about proud people who don't admit their need and humble people who do admit their need. You find true and lasting glory by becoming humble. You find true spiritual health by admitting that you're sick and that you need a Savior. You know, a couple years ago, I went to a sleep specialist, and he told me that according to the results of this sleep study, I needed a sleep apnea machine. And I said, there is no way I am going to wear one of those things. I just, you got to forget it. Is there another solution? So I called my son, who's a doctor. He said, Dad, well, let me put it to you this way. He looked at my results, and he said, 
Let me put it this, this way. If you want to see your grandkids longer, just get the machine and wear it every night. Like, oh, now i got to wear it. i got to admit that, first of all, i got a problem that I cannot fix. And that it could be, eventually, life-threatening. But same thing with the gospel of Jesus. It scoops the pride and self-righteousness out of us. And if we let him, he can drain the anxiety out of us as well. Because we don't have to try to justify ourselves. We're justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That creates a revolution in our soul. And we celebrate it every time we come to the Lord's table. We remember, we receive in humility, in vulnerability, admitting our need. But it also creates a societal revolution. We see the whole world differently. We become an alternative community of people centered around Jesus called the church. And we don't bow to the powerful, the rich, the brilliant, the beautiful. Because the first thing we do to get in is this incredibly vulnerable thing. We're baptized. We can't even do that to ourselves. It's done for us and to us. And it's a gift. And we respect human excellence, but we're, more than anything, we're drawn to the marginalized to the powerless, to the poor. Not only drawn, but we're willing to live sacrificially. But that's a whole other sermon. So let me ask you on this Palm Sunday, the donkey that explains the Bible, Jesus, Palm Sunday, your life. Will you let it define your life? Will you receive the gift that our humble Lord has to offer you today? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.